welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So it's great to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to speak on this topic. Let me just make sure this is all working. This morning, we're going to be looking at eschatology. Now, don't let that word bamboozle you. Eschatology simply means study of the last things. It comes from two Greek words when it comes up on the screen. Eschatos meaning last and logos meaning word. So it's the last word in biblical studies. Now, I've been teaching eschatology for a long time. Thanks, Jeff. And I think this is a vitally important topic for every Christian. Yet when was the last time that you heard one of your Christian friends speak about death? or heaven, or Christ's return, or our resurrection. A lot of people don't like talking about death, even Christians. In a recent survey, 2,000 UK adults were surveyed on this question. Only 20% were uh, were found to have been uh, talking about this topic with their family or their friends. Now, this isn't surprising. It can be very unsettling for us to think about our mortality. Although the Queen's recent funeral certainly brought death front and centre of our national and personal consciousness. Part of the problem is, is that when we talk about heaven or eternal life, for many people, all of this sounds like a fairy tale. And they all lived happily ever after. But this is our hope, centred in Jesus Christ. So let's have our reading for today. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Great, thank you very much. So scholars believe that the context of these verses is that at least one believer has died in the Thessalonian church. And the remaining believers in Thessalonia were wondering what did that mean for them in terms of Jesus' return and life everlasting. Now that their friend had died, would they also take part in the afterlife or had their death somehow excluded them from future glory? Now, we'll come back to that question a little bit later once we've done some groundwork. So verse 13, next slide, Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. In other words, he wants us to know. And what Paul is going to be writing about is the future of believers 
brothers and sisters, he writes, not the future of everyone. So Paul is writing to believers in Jesus about believers in Jesus. For those people who don't know Jesus, that's another message for another day done by somebody else. Now, Paul writes of those who are asleep, which is a euphemism for death and was normal language both in scripture and in the literature of this time. We might think of John 11, where Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus was asleep and he was going to wake him up, when it's very clear that Lazarus was dead and Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. And what was the purpose of Paul's instruction? Still in verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So at this point in history, Gentile cultures had varied beliefs about the afterlife. And there was great confusion as to whether there was even such a thing as life beyond the grave. So it very much sounds like our culture today. And Paul wanted his readers to understand that this life isn't as good as it gets. And death is no longer the great enemy because death is no longer the end of the story. There's something so much better still to come. Now, Paul isn't saying that Christians shouldn't grieve. Paul isn't in any way minimising death or bereavement, and neither am I. At any funeral, there is the outpouring of sorrow because grief is both natural and appropriate. Jesus himself wept at Lazarus's tomb. If a relative dies peacefully of old age, it's still painful and upsetting. If a friend's life is cut short far too early, or they experience a particular difficult death, then it's extremely sad and really distressing. Paul is saying that grief is right and proper, but not to grieve as if we have no hope for the future. As followers of Jesus, we know where we're going when we die. So we should carry that assurance of a hope and a future into everyday life. Whenever it is that we do die, we will find Jesus there welcoming us home. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is the classic Protestant uh, statement of faith, question 37 asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Or put another way, what's our hope that we will receive from Jesus? And they answer their own question. The souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. So our soul immediately goes to be with the Lord while our bodies go into the ground. So what is a soul? That's not actually an easy question to answer. But it's our self-awareness. It's our self-consciousness. It's what we think of when we say that we're alive. In Jewish thinking, it's the essence of life or it's the spark of life. In 1 Corinthians 2, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 even, Paul writes, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in Philippians 1.23, Paul writes, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. So we can be certain that when a believer dies, they go directly to be with the Lord. Our souls leave our bodies and we enter into conscious, real, intimate life with our Saviour and King. Now the Bible tells us very little else about what's known as the intermediate state. So anything else that I was to say, would, uh, to say this morning would to be guess. It would be guessing, it would be supposition, and I'm not going to do that. Now we have a graphic on the screen. Thank you very much. No expense spared. This first area is now life where we are right now. And we move to the second area, which is somewhere that we stay temporarily before Jesus comes back. So in John 14, verse 2, Jesus declares that there are many rooms in his father's house. The word for rooms is mone, and it means lodging, like an ancient inn or a guest house. It's somewhere that you stay before you finish your journey. So we don't remain there, but after Jesus returns, again, if you see the graphic, we move to the third area where God and his people will live forever. It's in this resurrection that we will get new bodies. So bodily resurrection is hugely significant in biblical thinking. But you're not a body who has a soul. You're a soul who has a body and you will receive a brand new body in the future. When Jesus returns, he isn't going to put the bits of our bodies back together again, because resurrection is not reconstruction. In 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches that the resurrection of the human body is like the growing of a plant from a seed. So there is continuity between the plant and the seed. The dead body is the seed, and this is planted in the ground. The resurrection body is the flower that comes from that seed. So heaven is life after death, and when Christ returns and the new heaven and the new earth come together, then it's what Tom Wright calls life after life after death. Try to get your head around that one. But therefore, resurrection isn't just about living again. It's living again in a new body, based on the old one, but now this one is made for everlasting life. Basically, we get an upgrade. And we can only imagine what it will be like to have bodies that don't grow old, don't get damaged, don't get infected, don't suffer pain. Wow, I can't wait. It's truly amazing that every single human being born into the world has the capacity to live forever. And if we got this, if we really got this, it would change our perspective on everything. Verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Christ's death and resurrection is the central belief of our faith. In 1 Corinthians again, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. But our faith is in the present, and in the future we have that hope. And it's completely wrapped up 
in the person of Jesus Christ. His victory over sin and death won through his own death, resurrection and ascension. Because Jesus rose from the dead to everlasting life, he promises that those who trust in him will also live forever. And his promises are always true. Now, all of this isn't so that we sit around contemplating heaven, but that these truths drive us out both to declare and to demonstrate that we have a saviour who brings freedom, meaning, purpose, and hope. So one author writes, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It's Christians, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the next world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So for believers, we need no longer fear death because we look forward to everlasting life. If you don't know the freedom and the hope that I'm talking about, then please speak to somebody afterwards and we will try and explain a little bit more about what that might mean for you. But let's turn to the second part now of this passage, verse 14 through to verse 17. You'll be on the screen behind me and answer that Thessalonian question. So what about those who have died? Yeah, we've done our groundwork. We've, uh, we've laid a foundation. How do we answer that question? Is there any difference between those who are alive when Jesus returns and those who are already dead? Basically, is one group better off than the other? Paul states, no, there's no big difference. All the faithful children of God, dead and alive, will come together to celebrate Jesus. What will happen is that the dead in Christ will rise first. They deserve that honour because they've had to experience death which is something which all believers who are alive when Christ returns are spared from going through. And then those still alive will be caught up together with the now undead, making one enormous multitude of believers. And of course, all of this continues to stretch our imaginations way beyond what they can cope with. When we come to these verses, we do need to understand the context and culture of the Roman Empire. The coming of the Lord is the word parousia. Thessalonica was part of the Roman Empire, and when an emperor or some official dignitary came to visit a city, this was called his parousia. So word would be sent on ahead that the emperor or the VIP was coming. With no emails or text messages, they didn't always know very far in advance. And so trumpets would be blown to gather everyone together. And then the people of the city would go out to meet the emperor. There would be much celebrating and then everyone would turn around and royally escort the emperor or the VIP back into the city. And this is the image that Paul is drawing on. So the loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God create the image of God's people being assembled together and then going out to meet the Lord in the air. 
Once we have all gathered together with Jesus, we will turn around and accompany him as his faithful entourage back into the city, the new heaven and the new earth, as he takes his rightful place as the king of the universe. And then Paul finishes this section with, and so we will be always with the Lord. And that, the way that this is written, that is really the focus. It's not heaven. It's not even the new heaven and the new earth. It's being with Jesus. He is our greatest delight and our greatest joy. And it's living together with him. The reality is that our future is nothing without him and everything with him. We'll see him and we'll talk to him. We'll laugh with him and we'll sit down and eat meals with him. How incredibly wonderful is that going to be? William Randolph Hearst, a well-known American businessman and politician, would never allow anyone to speak of death in his presence. Just before she retired from his employment, his housekeeper, a Christian woman, confronted him and said, Mr. Hurst, I know that you don't like talking about death, but I want you to know that I'm looking forward to it. Hurst replied, what? How can you look forward to death? You don't know what lies on the other side. I don't know what lies on the other side, she responded, but I know who is there my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And then she added as she turned around, and that's good enough for me. So Paul finishes off today's passage in verse 18 by saying that, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need to remember and share the hope and the future that we have as believers, the hope and the future that await God's people. We will live in a new world which is so much better than this one. A place without suffering, without hate or prejudice, without persecution and poverty, and of course, without death. It's going to be astounding. Again, our minds cannot really work this through. And as I was finishing this talk, and this is true, I looked out of the window and a hearse with a coffin drove by. It was a reminder that while our future destiny is going to be totally awesome, this is our present experience. Some of you know that our second child, Nathan, died only 17 minutes after he was born. Nathan would be 19 years old now. And a few days after he died, I wrote down my thoughts. I share some of what I wrote simply that it might help or encourage you. Still not sure I'm going to get through this, but I will try. Yesterday, I sat with Nathan's open coffin, which was no bigger than a shoebox. What struck me as I looked at our tiny son was that this was not Nathan. This was simply Nathan's body, which he didn't need anymore. We know that Nathan is in no pain or distress. In our world of conflict and suffering, Nathan has peace and joy. As believers in Jesus, we know that we have not lost our son because we know exactly where he is. We also know that the one who welcomed our little boy into heaven is the same one who is holding us in our grief. 
We don't understand the whys, but we do know that God makes nothing in vain and loves all he has made. Our comfort is that our Heavenly Father knows what it's like to lose a son. He really does understand. His son rose again and he is our hope and our future. We will never forget Nathan. His life has changed ours forever. Maybe one day we will understand more of why this has happened. Maybe we won't. But we look forward to one day seeing Nathan and giving him the biggest hug. Our belief in Jesus' promised future meant that we could process this horrible incident, the loss of our son, with a sense of hope and expectation. In John 11, Jesus went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and talked to Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks Martha. Do you believe this? Jesus asks us. Now, I'm very conscious with a talk like this that it may have opened old wounds. It may be upsetting, and obviously that's not the intention. But in praying for this message this morning, the idea really is, and I believe this with all my heart, is that God wants to meet with us in this. To take away that fear, to take away that pain, to meet us where we are, when we may all be in a very different place. But this morning, as we engage with God's word, as we listen to what he wants to say to us this morning, I pray that we will listen to his voice and move forward into that hope, that freedom, that meaning, that purpose that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.